walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 56. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. A few years ago, I made my first and currently only trip to India. A lucky accident as I got tacked on to a student trip heading there as a chaperone. I'm usually the one running the trip, so this was a rare opportunity to just sort of be along for the ride and take the experiences as they came. We spent most of our time in the north, in Delhi, Amritsar, and the Himalayan foothills. And to see the country from a different perspective, a somewhat less crowded perspective, we took a rafting trip along the Ganges River, spending a night camping along its banks. A lot of students, thus unintentionally, had the opportunity to imbibe the Holy Ganga. At one point, we stopped for lunch, and one of the guides noted that we could hike in a bit to see a small waterfall. The trail, the guide said, had long been used by Hindu pilgrims. <laughs> and you can imagine that got my attention. So I walked over there, and then, I kid you not, I made a discovery as I arrived at the trail. There was, in fact, a yellow arrow. There everywhere. I really, to this day, have no idea what it was doing there. I don't know why I hadn't thought about India specifically through the lens of pilgrimage prior to that trip, but I definitely was drawn to that link afterward. And as I tried to educate myself on the subject, I was drawn to the works of Dr. Diana Eck, who has written a masterpiece on the sacred city of Benares, and also a fantastic broader study of India's sacred places. With that foundation in place, I was curious if there were any English language pilgrimage journals similar to what many of us so ravenously consume about the Camino. And in time, I found one, a guide by Deepak Fadnis on the walking pilgrimage to Pandarpur. I'm thrilled to have both Diana and Deepak with me for this episode, which I hope will serve as an insightful introduction for many of you. Even if an Indian pilgrimage is not a viable consideration for you, I think you can gain something of benefit to your pilgrimage on the Camino by hearing about these experiences and perspectives. There are some really neat parallels to be drawn. So we're off to India with a close look at two pilgrimage shrines, Banaras and Pandarpur. Enjoy. Diana Eck is a professor of comparative religion and Indian studies at Harvard University and the director of the Pluralism Project. Her numerous publications include Benares, City of Light, India, A Sacred Geography, and Encountering God, A Spiritual Journey from Bozeman to Benares. It's a real pleasure to speak with you, Dr. Eck. Thank you. Thank you. I might say the very first course I taught in the general study of religion when I was a beginning teacher here was on pilgrimage. 
thinking that this was enough of a universal experience that the journey would provide a way for students to get into study. And it did. It was fun. That's really interesting. So was that even before you were focused specifically on India or were you already thinking about Indian studies at that point? No, I was thinking about Indian studies. In fact, this was after I had been to India a few times, first as an undergraduate student when I went on a study abroad program that was not just a sort of semester, but a whole year, and went to the city of Benares, where we attended part-time classes at Benares Hindu University. But for the rest, we did projects in the city. And of course, this city is one of the great places of pilgrimage in India. So that got me very interested in what it is that a great sacred city is. And then when it came time for me to write a doctoral dissertation at Harvard, I said, well, you know, I'd kind of like to write about the city of Benares. And my advisor told me, oh, it's far too big. It would be like writing your dissertation on Rome or something. (laughs) But I persuaded and found a way of doing this by looking at really fairly old Sanskrit texts about how this city was sacred and which of the temples within it had stories connected to them and which of the places along the Ganges riverfront were most important. So it became a kind of looking at the contemporary city through the lens of sacred texts that had described it for a very long time. So I kind of roamed about and mapped the city and made little pinpoints of all of its contemporary temples and did some of the pilgrimages that go around the city. There's a circumambulation of the whole place. And that sort of got me interested in the whole question of sacred places in India and pilgrimage. And then when I started teaching, this became sort of the part that I was able to contribute to this course. There were three of us who taught together. And we read everything from Walden, where Thoreau doesn't really travel that much, except through time and his imagination, to pilgrimages in Japan, like the poet Basho, whose little book, Narrow Road to the Deep North, is really a pilgrimage journal. And then big places like Mecca and Jerusalem and Benares. So it was an introduction to the comparative study of religion through the lens of the sacred journey. We'll circle back to Benares specifically, but I want to start broader, which is a challenging thing when we're talking about a country on the scale of India. But to the extent that you can, could you outline why do people go on pilgrimage in India? What are the, the major motivations behind that? Well, some of them are particular to their lives and the life cycle. They may go to a very local or distant place of pilgrimage because they have something they want to ask. They have a crisis in their life. And it may be, you know, someone is very, very sick or that maybe someone has recently died. So they have specific reasons that come out of their own life. And usually they will go and pledge something to the power of the divine that is there. And then when that vow or that request is fulfilled, they will go back again. That's one kind of pilgrimage. 
But for many of them, it is just the general sense that going to these places that are seen as powerful will be beneficial, either in this lifetime or the next. And those places are so many. I mean, some of them are along the riverbanks because the rivers, in a way, are the great cathedrals of India. They are the places that are absolutely central to pilgrimage. They might be places associated with one of the very powerful understandings of God. And there are many places like that, too. So when people take off on pilgrimages, they often say that they have a kind of statement of why they're going. Sometimes it's going for this particular benefit or not. Sometimes, and more often, they're going simply to please God. And that's the widest sense of what this statement of intention is. But it's an intentional journey. It's not just a random trip, but an intentional journey. There are a couple of terms that I came across in your book that really stood out to me for thinking about pilgrimage in India and also thinking about how they extend potentially to the pilgrimage context that I'm more familiar with. And I'd love to hear you talk about them in more detail. The first one is darshana. What is darshana and why is it important to Hindu pilgrimage? It's usually pronounced darshan. All right. That's a good place to start. It might be darshana in the Sanskrit pronunciation, but darshan really means beholding and seeing with one's own eyes. And of course, to visit a temple or to visit a place, darshan is extremely important. It is the moment of the sort of sacred gaze of connection between the worshiper and the divine. And in a temple, that might be the actual image of the divine, whether it's, what, anthropomorphic or not. Some are not anthropomorphic, but sort of casting one's eyes upon the Lord and receiving, on the other hand, the gaze of the Lord. That is one of the reasons that a lot of the deities do have eyes, and sometimes the eyes rather exaggerated, because that sense of connection through sight is so important. But it also might be just the darshan of a sacred place, of a mountain that is seen to be powerful and a sort of geographical embodiment of the power of God. It's a wide-ranging term, but if you're encountering a pilgrim on the path as you're headed somewhere and they're returning, people would also often say, did you have darshan? Did you actually see? And that sense of beholding with the sight is really important. I mean, we have other traditions in which hearing is important. Hearing the word of God, for example, in the Islamic tradition, the importance of the orality of the Quran, or in Jewish and Christian traditions, hear, O Israel, that hearing is important. But in the Hindu tradition, I mean, hearing is also important because the sense of the sacred word, scriptures, you might say, the Vedas, are essentially alive in the cosmos, and the people who are the really good mystics are the ones who can hear it. But for pilgrimage itself, it is the beholding through the eyes of the divine. And they 
refer to that as darshan. And in temples, there will be times when the curtain in front of the deity is closed and they're making special offerings or special garments, you might say. And then the curtain is open and there's just a gasp of recognition and people delighted to see the face of the goddess or of Shiva or of Vishnu. The other concept I'd love to hear you talk about is Tirtha. Tirtha. Mm-hmm. And the Tirthas really are these places of pilgrimage. The word literally means a crossing place, a ford, a place where you can get across the river. And that is metaphorical in a way, where you can cross the river of this earthly life, ever-changing as it is, to the far shore of immortality or of liberation. But it also sort of refers to the fact that many of the great pilgrimage places of India were at the fords, at the places of river crossing, at the places where the great roads of trade crossed over the rivers. And that's true of a number of them. But that concept of a place on this shore, in this world, where the crossing to another dimension is possible, is very, very powerful. And that means that the earth itself is somehow differentiated, that there are those places of power where you can stand or bathe or pray, where everything is amplified and where your prayers are more quickly heard, your desires more quickly fulfilled, your spiritual aspirations more certain of fulfillment. So that sense of a tirtha is very powerful. Some of them are on riverbanks, many of them are, and bathing in rivers or bathing in sacred waters is very important to to worship generally. Some tirthas are literally mountaintops where you can imagine more closely the proximity to the heavens. Can you talk more about what worship entails in terms of the river bathing specifically? I know that that certainly occurs in Benares, which is on the the Ganges River. I haven't been to Benares, but I did briefly pass through Haridwar and the ghats there, the steps leading down. And it wasn't a major time of pilgrimage, but even then the steps were filled with people who who were bathing in the water. What is the religious act that is taking place there? Partly, it is what we would associate with bathing generally. It's sort of purification in advance of presenting yourself in the temple, for example. I mean, it goes with other forms of worship. It partly is immersing oneself in the holy waters. I mean, there is a sense in which these rivers are considered from a spiritual point of view not only to essentially be rivers of heaven that are flowing on earth, but to be kind of liquid forms of the power of God. And so there is a way in which that immersion is not simply refreshing and purifying, but something that has its own spiritual power. I mean, the very act is not very complicated. People will dip into the water three times usually, 
they may lift up the waters in their hands like this and pour the water back in over the tips of their fingers. And that might be an offering. It might be a recognition of wanting to provide those waters of refreshment to one's own ancestors, to those who have passed on before. The offering of water and then the sipping of water is also significant. And, you know, people sometimes find that a little difficult because they think this water isn't very pure. And many places it really isn't. I mean, I think the issue of the purification of the rivers of India and dealing with what has become industrial and human pollution is one of the great issues for any city, any government. Nobody has been able to tackle it very well. But that is true that, you know, people are sipping these waters on a daily basis. So they need to be protected in a way. And every government has pledged they're going to do this and no one has done it very well so far. But to answer your question, the rituals of bathing are not very complex. They do involve some prayers. They might, especially bathing at dawn, particular prayers that are said and particular acts of submersion and taking of the waters in one's hands. So let's zoom in on Benares now. And now that I've familiarized myself a bit with pilgrimage in India, there are, of course, many, many significant pilgrimage sites in India, but Banara stands out. What is it about Banaras that makes it so significant, so consequential within India and, and in the world? Well, part of it in a general sense is reputation. That's a big deal. It also is its antiquity in India. The fact that there are so many points of sacred history that converge there. It was the place that Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, preached his first sermon, felt that this was a place of, at that point, a place of refuge and of multiple ashrams or forest retreats that were important for spiritual seekers. But also, I think it's the general sense that this is a place that has concentrated so much of the sacred lore of India. It's seen to be a city of Shiva that was in existence long, long, long ago, and that even in the cycles of destruction that are part of the wider Hindu sense of cosmology, that there are just times after eons and eons when everything crumbles and then the world is recreated. And Benares is seen to be that place that Shiva, the Lord of Immortality, lifts up upon the tips of his trident and that persists even through those times of destruction. There also is the sense that it's one of only a few places in India that one can bring the ashes of the beloved dead of your own relatives for sanctification and immersion in the Ganges that will supply the energy for their rebirth or for their immortality. It's one of those places where it is said that simply by dying there, one becomes free, one attains moksha or spiritual freedom. 
doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your past life has been, that death in Benares is liberation. And that's a very powerful draw as well. So people have over the years come to Benares to live out their remaining years until they die. And there are rest homes and hostels for them to live in that are organized primarily by language groups. So if you come from the Tamil or Telugu speaking South, there's a place for you. And if you come from Bengal, there's a rest place for Bengalis. And there are people, you know, for whom this is a kind of last stop retirement home where they want to live by the banks of the Ganges in a holy atmosphere in order to finally die there. I think that has also been one of the great attractions of the city of Benares. Benares has importance to Hindus, Buddhists, Jainists. How does that play out in practice with representatives of these different faiths all drawn to the same sacred city? In practice, it is quite seamless. I mean, the distinctions between who is Jain and, you know, the Jains who have their temples along the river, who is Buddhist and who is Hindu of various stripes. I mean, there are Shaivas, there are Vaishnavas, you know, for whom Vishnu is the sort of prime locus of the religious imagination. There are those for whom the goddess is primary and her temples will be more important. But you know, all of this exists side by side, along with the fact that there is a significant, over the last thousand years, there's a significant Muslim population in Benares. I mean, the first time I ever heard the call to prayer was in Benares. (laughs) So there are Muslim quarters, there are places where, frankly, one or two important places where a Hindu temple has been essentially replaced by a mosque, And there have been tensions along those lines over the years. But on the whole, even today, when those Hindu-Muslim tensions have been more pronounced, because they certainly have in the last 30 years, and especially since the Modi government has come. But even so, there is a sense that Benares is essentially a place of commerce and prosperity and pilgrimage and tourism, and nobody wants to disrupt this. Muslims or Hindus, neither of them. On the Muslim-Hindu front, there are a few places, including at one of the central temples in the city, where there are armed guards, so to speak, looking out to keep order. But there have not been the great flaring tensions that there have been at other pilgrimage places like Ayodhya, the birthplace of Rama, for example. But the multi-religious nature of the city is, on the whole, something that is inconsequential for, I mean, it does mean it brings lots of different people there, including churches. There are quite a number of Christian communities there as well. A pilgrim to Benares today. Yeah. What would their pilgrimage to the city entail? I realize it's going to be different for everyone, but is there kind of a a typical length and a series of practices? We've talked about bathing in the river, of course, in the Ganges, but what else does a pilgrimage to the city tend to entail? 
it partly depends on one's intention, the vow of intention one takes at the beginning. And it may be if you're coming from some other part of India with the ashes of your mother and father or something, then that's a particular kind of pilgrimage. And that might involve a recapitulation of some of the death rites along the banks of the river. For an ordinary pilgrim, if one can think about that, it would mean arriving either on a bus or by train, or if you're not very far away, by foot. It might then mean going directly to a place where you're likely to spend the night and putting your bags down and going to the Ganges. That would be the first stop, a bathe in the river, probably at one of the five most important sites of bathing along the river, which extend from north to south. On the northern end, there is a place where the Varana River enters into the Ganga, and that is a Sangam where two rivers come together. And on the other end, where the Assi River comes into the Ganga. So this is sort of the derivation of the term Varanasi, which is one of the common names of Benares. So you would go to one of those places, powerful places, to bathe and then go into the city to probably one of the most important temples, and that is the Kashi Vishwanath Temple, the main temple of Shiva. And there you might have a escort or guide with you that would lead you through some of these narrow lanes because it is literally a cobweb of little tiny streets that are no wider than most city sidewalks into that temple. And you would simply make your offering of a flower or water to the image of Shiva, which is there in this aniconic form of a linga, just literally a, a stone mound that represents Lord Shiva. Then it depends. I mean, there are things that you might do because it's important for your own pilgrimage. And that might be going to one of the two cremation grounds in the city. And those would be places where you might find the proper liturgical assistant to offer some of the final rites for your own beloved dead. That would involve you sitting down on the banks and doing those rites with that particular Brahmin assistant. And then, of course, people on pilgrimage like to do lots of things. They would like to wander in some of those lanes and frequent the shops and buy little mementos, buy little tiny bottles of Ganges water that have been sealed for the trip home, or buy little images of the gods or bits of Benares silk. I mean, there are many, many things like this on order. And then for many pilgrims, they might also have a, if they're by bus, they might also go to Sarnath, which is the place at the edge of the city that is still the remains of the deer park and the sanctuary of a monastery that was the site of the Buddha's first sermon of his turning the wheel of the Dharma. There's a temple there, a Buddhist temple, and there are archaeological remains of some of the monastery and one big stupa, a Buddhist reliquary that people circumambulate. 
And even for Hindu pilgrims, this might be something they would really like to do. Most of these pilgrimages are not going to stay in Benares more than a couple of days. And then they would make their way to the next stop. And for most pilgrimages, especially the bus pilgrimages, there are many other places to go. So this may be the highlight for a lot of people, but it certainly they would not pass by multitudes of other places simply because their destination was only Benares. I don't know how many Hindus, Buddhists, Jains are, are listening to this, but it's a distinct minority. Most of the people listening are Christian, secular, yeah. Western. <laughs> Some of them, having walked the Camino de Santiago, having been brought into pilgrimage in that way, are now drawn to the idea of religious travel. And they might be interested in going to a place like Benares and seeing it, but not as believers, as outsiders coming in. So if someone were to visit Benares from that perspective, what are some things they should keep in mind about how to see and experience it, but to do so in a, in a respectful and appropriate manner? There are many ways to do this. Benares is a place that has been frequently visited by lots and lots of people. One thing certainly would be to spend a good part of the day simply walking along the ghats of the Ganga. You might start in the south at Assi and just keep walking, walking past some of the great ghats and temples, observing what goes on there because the ghats are many. There are places where the dobies, the washermen, do their clothes in the morning. There are places where people bring their cows to bathe. There are places where the main significance is a hospital. Then there are lots of places that have the religious bathing rites as well. Even in those places, you would find people doing their daily baths, soaping up and bathing in that respect in the Ganges. And then you would pass both of the cremation grounds, one that now has an electric crematorium, and then the oldest one, Manikarnika, which does not and where one would want to be especially respectful because, I mean, you can climb up onto the upper parts of the buildings and watch what happens in a cremation. And that for many people is an eye-opener. But I think walking the riverbank is something many people would not take the time to do. And it is one of the most interesting things to do. Now, both for pilgrims and for visitors, Benares has developed an evening ritual of arati, which is a lamp offering, to the Ganga. It's very popular, and I sort of omitted that in talking about Hindu pilgrims, but they certainly would go if they were there in the evening and had a chance. It would be a highlight. And there, there's a kind of lineup of about 10 professional liturgists who are uniformly dressed and who have great, big, tall, multi-wicked candelabras, you might say, and also the other things, the incense and whatnot, that they offer specifically to the Ganga every night. So it is the worship of the Ganga, and it involves the lamp offerings and the incense offerings that are part of regular temple worship as well. And it also involves the hymnody, the songs, which are 
at that point pretty much blasted from loudspeakers. But you know, it's not too loud, and it is a it's a very meditative and beautiful. I have known Benares for. 40 some years. So I know now that this is something that is a recent, I'd say relatively recent, the last uh, 15, 20 years in Benares history. It is a beautiful ceremony. So I would advise going to that in the evening. Then, of course, what people will experience as they go into the main part of the city and approach the river, there will be boatmen who will be asking them in fact, pestering them to go on a boat trip with them. And that boat trip may go again up and down the Ganges along the Ghats. But it's worth seeing it from the standpoint of the river as well. Not just walking on your own two feet, but going with a boatman. Sometimes they will say things like, boat round, madam, see dead bodies burning or something like that. You know, I mean, the come on is sometimes a little too affrontive, but that would be a natural thing for people to do as well. Then I would suggest for pilgrims east and west to strike out into the little lanes of Benares, the little gullies. Some people have to use the maps that I have drawn or that can be found in order to make their way because it is a tangle of tiny little streets. And it is one of the most interesting things about the city that you see this very old city of lanes. Several of parts of the city now have big thoroughfares sort of blasted through them so that there can be truck traffic and car traffic and bus traffic. But on the whole, the inner part of the city is still a walking city. And if they could only disbar the motorcycles, it would be a very peaceful place as well. But I think it's worth getting lost in a city like this. It's the way that I became acquainted with the city, most of it, by simply walking through the lanes. I will say that the current government of India made a decision a couple of years ago that it would be more convenient for pilgrims to go straight from the river to the Vishwanath Temple. And so they decided they would plow a thoroughfare from the river to the temple. And I have not seen this. I'm not sure I want to see it, but it has created a huge amount of controversy because between the river and the temple, there are lots and lots of little temples and the ground floor of many, many homes. So they have destroyed a bit of old Benares in the interest of what they consider a convenience. I'm not sure that the pilgrims ever thought it was going to be more convenient to walk a thoroughfare to the temple than take the old traditional route of snaking their ways through the tiny lanes to get there. But I can't really comment more on that until I have the misfortune of finally seeing it. It's just one of the things that, you know, has happened to try to make this pilgrimage a little easier on people. Among the good things that has happened, they've created Ganga Cleanathon days and placed trash cans along the river for people's extraneous trash and, you know, made some sort of desultory attempts to avert that the river is cleaner than it probably still is. You make me think of parts of the Camino de Santiago where old trails have been replaced with broader 
flattened gravel tracks in the interests of the pilgrims, but I don't know many pilgrims that find that to be an upgrade. And there, there are particular rest houses for pilgrims along the way. Yeah. Well, that is true in Indian pilgrimage, that both private and governmental groups have created pilgrim rest houses. You know, they're very simple with basic amenities. But among the other things that particularly devout Hindu pilgrim might do in Benares is to circumambulate the whole city, as probably in other pilgrimages, the idea of walking around something that is considered sacred, circumambulating it as in the Kaaba, in Mecca, or many other things. It's a way of doing honor to that because the city is itself seen as a sacred manifestation of the light of Shiva. Walking all around it is a fairly extensive task. It takes five days, not because the urban part of the city extends that far, but because the sense of the sacredness of the city extends that far. So along that route called Panchakroshi, they would have at least three or four night stops at rest places where there were rudimentary facilities for pilgrims. That definitely for most is a walking pilgrimage with the sacred city on one's right as one goes along. This has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. This has been great, Dave. And I would say for walking pilgrims in India, there are a lot of other places. I mean, if you go to Hardwar where you were, and then take a bus or a car partway, you can go fairly significantly into the Himalayas and take some walking pilgrimages from there to the high mountain shrine of Kedarnath, for example. A lot of these are places that are frequently affected by glacial runoff and floods and avalanches. But even so, if the roads are open, that's a possibility. There are a lot of walking pilgrimages into the mountains. Fantastic. Deepak Fadnas is the author of Pandarpur Wari, A Walking Pilgrimage to Pandarpur. After a 40-year career in the petrochemical and chemical industries, and a later stint teaching at the College of Engineering in Pune, Deepak finally had some time and determined that he would make a walking pilgrimage to the Shrine of Vitoba in Pandarpur. Having found little practical information about the pilgrimage online prior to his walk, he determined to remedy that with his own book. And he's here to talk with me about the book and his adventure and Pandarpur. Thanks for speaking with me, Deepak. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start big picture. What makes Pandarpur a pilgrimage destination? What's the history behind it? Pandarpur has a very old history. There was a story many, many years ago. It's beyond dating. It's probably from some BC. There was a devotee named Pundalik. He was a very great devotee of God, Lord Vishnu. Vishnu is the Godhead. And he was a very good devotee of Vishnu. He always aspired to have the darshan, to meet Lord Vishnu. And he was living in Pandarpur. 
and what happened is one day lord decided to come and bless him with his darshan lord wanted to see him so he came to pundalika's house in pandarpur to bless him but pundalika was busy serving his parents his parents were very old and he was uh, probably pressing their feet and giving them some service so when uh, the god came at his doorstep the devotee said lord please wait for some time because i am just busy with my old parents so till then till then please wait and he gave a brick for lord to stand on for waiting so the lord went and stood on a brick and waiting for the devotee to finish serving his parents after a long time then the devotee pundalik then he apologized to god god gave him the blessing darshan and he was very happy he made god wait but god appreciated that god said that well you saw that god is there in your parents heart and you were serving the god in their hearts so i didn't mind standing at all then pundalik requested him that just the way you were standing for me waiting for me can you do the same thing now forever can you stand on this brick forever and bless the devotees and wait eagerly for devotees who will come from the whole earth to meet you the lord readily agreed so since then and that was 28 yugas ago which means some, some several hundred thousand years ago that lord is standing on a brick with his hands on the west and he doesn't rest people come on the auspicious day of ashadi ekadashi that day is very holy and when you visit pandarpur on that day you see lakhs hundreds of thousands of people and there is a poem written by one saint namdev which says that anyone who comes to pandarpur on the day of ashadi ekadashi and takes the blessings of the lord he becomes free from the cycle of births and deaths achieves liberation all you have to do is go to pandarpur take a bath in the holy river and then just meet the lord and you will be getting liberation so that is the promise given in by a saint so that tradition continues since 12th or 13th century saint naneshwara who was the one big pioneer of revival of the saints and the religion in india in the 13th century saint naneshwara's grandfather somewhere in the 1200s he started this tradition of pandarpur and the reason is like this that the agricultural economy depended only on the monsoon when the sowing was done in june july the monsoon comes you do the sowing in the farms once you have finished the sowing you don't have much work for another 15 20 days <laughs> after 15 20 days you have to do the weeding of the grass but for 15 20 days you are free and hindu culture has been such that they want a man to concentrate while living on his destination after death where he wants to go after death so the religion teaches you to look at the thing beyond your existence where are you from where why you came here what is the purpose you came here the purpose is to discover the god within you discover your own self so the religion has concentrated more on the philosophy spirituality than on material progress and so the people at that time they said 
that for this 20 days let us do some introspection and how do you do the introspection you do walking you do singing chanting in devotion for god and you walk down all the way from alandi which is near pune you walk down from alandi to kondarpur that's a walk of over 18 19 days and that is how the tradition started so that the people will spend a lot of time in doing introspection and expressing love for god one point i would like to emphasize here is that the indian philosophy has bhakti as the chief element what is bhakti bhakti is devotion but not plain translation of devotion but bhakti is you can say affection plus devotion so you are treating god affectionately you can treat god as your child you can treat god as your brother as your friend very informal relationship with god you can dance you can sing you can even play with god because in scriptures they have said that sri lord sri krishna played with all the friends in vrindavana in matra in vrindavana uh, so those were that god is, is ready to establish a relationship of affection plus devotion mm. so this is the way you express your affection and devotion by walking all the way supposing you are a great friend of mine so i will say hey come on i will come walking to meet you all the way if i don't have a car doesn't matter i'll walk it down so this is the idea of walking it down singing the bhajans kirtans and dancing all the way and a lot of your answer was focused on why people were walking when the tradition started but i imagine some of that still very much has relevance today to you as a long-time professional who came to pilgrimage later in your life what was the draw for you what inspired you to make this pilgrimage for me since i was a child i used to hear the famous abhangas those are the songs written in praise of the lord vithoba the lord vithala or the lord panduranga the god in pandurpur is known as vithala vithoba panduranga krishna he is the he is a form of krishna and there are lot of songs written and lot of the the best indian singers like lata mangeshkar asha bhosle and bhimsen joshi they all sang these abhangas in such lovely tunes that every person in mumbai pune around mumbai pune those who speak the language uh, marathi they are familiar with these abhangas and pandrapur and vithoba is very very popular as one god who attracts people only for love people will go to other temples to ask for things if somebody wants a child he will go to trambakeshwar if somebody wants child he will go to nasik and there are many other deities in many other places but when people go to pandrapur the idea is to go to pandrapur just with love for god in your heart nothing else you go there you touch the feet of the lord you say simply god this is the great opportunity i have had in my life to touch your feet i thank you very much i don't need anything else if i can get this opportunity again and again to come and meet you that is the best because you are giving me everything the man who goes to pandrapur has a contented heart he says i have everything god with your blessings i get food i have clothing i have a shelter and whatever I, my needs are met and i know that you are giving me everything i have no complaints 
and I love you. And just because I love you, I care. I rest my head at your feet, and now I am going back. I am happy. That is the way Pandapur is very popular. Take us into the day-to-day experience of this pilgrimage. What was it like on a daily basis making this walk? How did it go for you? I know that your book goes into this in fantastic detail, but give us a sense of what what it was like. We used to get up at around 3-3.30 in the morning, (laughs) get ready, take a nice bath, shave. We used to have a halt somewhere in a school, school building. There will be about 150, 170 people in my group. We would get ready, we would take bath and then we will take a breakfast. We'll eat a breakfast, have tea and get a packed lunch with us. We'll put a lunch in our bag or our shoulder and start walking at 6 o'clock. The dindi, that is the, the rule of the wari, the Pandapur wari. This is known, this pilgrimage is known as Pandapur Pai Wari. Pari means walking pilgrimage of Pandapur. So the whole thing is following Saint Naneshwara. Saint Naneshwara starts in his own dindi from Alandi. His sandals are carried in a palanquin and that is in the front. That is leading the wari to Pandapur. So that palanquin, that group starts moving first. And after that group has moved, then the rest of all the other groups start following them in sequence. That is how the wari is. The wari has a very well-defined structure and it works almost like a military discipline, but all with love. Nobody has any arguments. There are no fights. There are no quarrels because everybody calls everybody as Mauli. Walk together and wari. You will call me Mauli. I will call you Mauli because mother, God element, which is inside my heart, which is inside your heart, is the mother of this whole universe. So every person is my mother in that spirit. Naneshwara, although he was a male saint, people say Naneshwara Mauli. She is the mother of the whole universe, Naneshwara Mauli. So in that spirit, we would walk typically anything between 15 to 35 kilometers every day. Some stretches would be small, some would be big. You can say average about 22-23 kilometers every day. The walking starts at 6 a.m. after the Mauli Dindi. There's a huge procession of at least 500,000 people. And the length of the procession is 5 kilometers or even more. There are three halts during the day. The first halt is for the of the people who are walking and uh, that would be about 15-20 minutes halt, maybe around 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. After that, about 12 o'clock, there is a lunch break. That would be about half an hour or 45 minutes. After that, in the afternoon, there will be a rest of probably about 15-20 minutes again. That will be just by the side of the road and after that, they'll start walking again. And they don't walk very fast. Sometimes they stay at a point. Sometimes they stop at a point. Because the chariot which is carrying the Naneshwara's sandals is in the lead. And people are flocking from the nearby villages to take a glimpse of the sandals. And to go down to the saint sandals in respect. And they believe that if they touch that sandal, the holy sandals, 
the blessing from said naneshwara flows right into their bodies so wherever they go every new village they have to stop and people will flock they will perform aarti they will perform puja they will want to touch the sandals they will want to bow down and that is how slowly dancing chanting and singing the all the groups are dancing and chanting and singing all the time that is the way the vari formation i can't even conceptualize a 5 kilometer long river yes. of humanity 500000 people it's it's just so difficult to fathom my frame of reference is the camino de santiago in spain and if you have 500 people around you it feels <laughs> overwhelming <laughs> so what was it like for you being in this river of humanity being in this river of humanity one would realize that you are virtually a particle in this whole group we are a very negligible particle if you talk about it in the terms of materials among 500000 people you are a negligible particle and still the god is with you he is blessing you it is a very humbling feeling you feel very humbled that i i am nobody even if i may be a big executive in my office i may be a millionaire or a billionaire in front of god everybody is equal and we all call each other we address the god in each other we give respect to each other we it's a very holy feeling very lovely feeling and so much respect for every person whether person may be a disabled person he may be a very old person we may not be able to walk properly or there could be a child of 7 or 8 years age there are women who walk with a child on their shoulder and you realize that this is the real life university my friends tell me that wari pandarpur wari or the pilgrimage is a life university you stay in this university for 19 days and then you graduate at the end of the 19th day and what does it teach you the university teaches you how to live life how to treat each other how to give respect to each other how to have consideration of others before you how to learn to sacrifice you want water but the other person standing in front of you or the one behind you is in a dire need of water so you tell him okay you go first i'll go later it teaches you lovely things sharing of food sharing of everything if somebody gets hurt everybody is flocking around and there other spirit in this pilgrimage is that there are many people who are standing by the side of the road to give donations because every pilgrim who walks to pandarpur is considered as a child of god god himself and this pilgrim is treated like lord so people are saying that lord is passing through my village so they come they come with some fruits offering or they come with some sweets offering or some of them they'll stand with mineral water bottles they will offer mineral water bottles for people to drink some people will offer free medical aid tablets for any sickness doctors from the whole maharashtra region they go and they give their services free they don't charge anything for treating the workers and one beautiful thing so we are feeling very beautiful as a prime focus because the whole focus from the state of maharashtra during those 18 days is on the wari procession which is going to pandarpur newspapers are filled with news about where the wari went from which to sector to which sector who performed puja who performed this who met the wari 
so the progress of mari is covered in all the media the television the newspapers so we were kind of in the center of focus at the same time realizing that we are we are nobody <laughs> that's really interesting i must tell you one beautiful thing that has happened is they consider that every devotee who comes back from pandapur after taking this walking pilgrimage becomes the lord vitova himself and when he has come home supposing i am in mumbai and somebody has come from pandapur after walking the wari to pandapur he comes to me i should touch his feet because if i touch his feet it is as good as touching the lord's feet and i get blessing as if i have traveled to pandapur that's the belief so the man who comes from pandapur has a tremendous respect i'll ask this question just out of curiosity and ignorance you've talked about touching the feet of vitoba in pandarpur you've talked about the sandals that are leading the procession and now feet again is this a common gesture throughout your faith or is it specific to pandarpur in a reflection of the walking aspect of walking pilgrimage the walking aspect is found at as i know three places in india walking to meet the lord walking from your own house to meet the lord is the only this place uh, concept only in pandarpur so from alandi or pune people walk to pandarpur the second walking pilgrimage that i know of in india is at mata vishnu devi temple that somewhere in the north in jammu and there there is an overnight walk people do and you have to climb up hill i don't remember the kilometers but it could be 30 35 kilometers maybe that is the second walking pilgrimage and the third one is in south india which is called the ayappa temple devotees walk to the temple of ayappa lord ayappa is another form of lord krishna so these are found at three places and as far as the sandals and the palanquins is concerned that is all over india you will see that uh, how to express your respect for a senior be it even your own father brother teacher and of course god or saint touch his feet because be humble touch his feet let the energy flow from his feet into your body that man is so charged that saint is so charged that the moment you touch your finger to his feet you are going to take a lot of charge from him and he will be the loser probably but he may not be the loser because he has got enough charge in him but you take a lot of charge from him and you definitely progress on the path of not only spirituality but also your material world the blessings from a saint will flow and they will give you blessings spiritual blessings as well as material blessings the humbleness and the way to express humbleness is by prostrating at the feet It's interesting the connection with Christianity because the foot washing tradition that goes back to Jesus is still observed in some pilgrimage hospitality along Christian pilgrimage roads today. And in fact when you say I am at your feet when you say and you tell lord or when you tell the saint that I am at your feet there is another meaning of it other meaning is I am serving at your feet means I am serving the mission what you stand for if a saint says that okay don't kill people give love to everybody do donations don't hold things practice serenity practice silence 
so when i say i am serving at the feet of the saint what it means is i am following all the teaching what he is all his teaching then only i am entitled to say that i am serving at your feet it's not just merely touching of the hand and then saying i am your servant you have to serve with your activities also that's really interesting you can see my mind in pilgrimage goes very quickly to walking and on the pilgrimages that i've walked so much of my attention is invested in the daily walk and then the evening is largely devoted to relaxation self-care food and so i was struck in your account of the pandarpurwari how much is going on in the evening after the walk and maybe that's just a consequence of having 500,000 people back together but could you describe what the evenings are like on this pilgrimage when you reach your destination generally it would be anything between let's say 3 o'clock in the afternoon to 5 o'clock in the evening some people walk fast so they reach the destination fast we knew where we are supposed to halt because our group leader generally has given me a list of all the destinations in all the towns so we reach that school and we once we reach that school our uh, goods whatever our suitcase or bag or whatever we are carrying with us the clothes they have come to that destination by a truck the group operator has made sure that your belongings have been transported from the previous halt to the second halt to the next halt so i take possession of my things first because once i take possession of the, my things i get my clothes i get time to wind down i will spread my bread spread i can lie down there for a while maybe 15 20 minutes of just rest and i can have tea refresh myself wash my feet and then the whole group comes together sits on a ground and the group leader along with some musical instruments like the tal the cymbals and the drums we start singing what is known as haripat haripat is the poem of 28 abhangas and these abhangas were written by saint gnaneshwara in the 13th century and that haripat is basically expression of love and a complete assurance that you keep chanting the name of the lord with love and with reverence and if you keep serving him with your heart lord is going to make you free from all the pains whatever the pains may be of this material world you will be freed from all the pains so that is the promise with those 828 stanzas and it's such a beautiful feeling the group leader is sitting on a dais and there are the musical instruments people playing the musical instruments so he sings the first line of haripat and we sing the second line the first half of the line is sung by him and we complete the second half like devachiya dwari ubhakshana bhari he says and then i say tene mukti chari sadhiyala then he says hari mukhe mana hari mukhe vana then the group says punyachi ganana kon kari and in a very beautiful rhythm the whole thing goes on for almost an hour the hari part goes on and all the magic takes place day while the magic takes place during the hari part i tell you if i am dog tired during the whole day with the big long walk and every day walking another 20 kilometers is not a joke the feet will ter- terrific problem especially for somebody like me i am not a walker i am not a very hobby walker so 
for me it used to be difficult but this one hour when i am chanting is as if there's some magic is taking place the strength would return to my body to my feet to my mind and we are all fresh we become as so fresh that we are feeling that now next day morning we we'll definitely be able to walk again and that thing goes on for say till 7:30 then there will be some uh, religious discourse or sometimes some drama will take place some acting some uh, chantings there are some things called harud bharud is a form of poetry written by saints which has two meanings and one meaning is an earthly meaning materialistic meaning and the second meaning is devoted to god and to worship and to spiritual so by giving this type of a very tricky wording the saints used to guide people and motivate them to come onto the spiritual path in india life is all about motivating people on coming to the spiritual path as you age as you go on aging slowly slowly every person start getting motivated towards spiritual and so some of these bharud some dramas would be performed some singing will take place and then we go for dinner generally the light will not be sufficient there will be one or two incandescent bulbs hanging here and there but the people who have come earlier before you they come in a truck they bring all the utensils the gas and everything and they make elaborate cooking they make everything that you need for dinner dal rice vegetable pickles chutney and a very delicious dinner is waiting for you so around 8 30 9 o'clock we all will have dinner okay the first thing which i told you after taking possession of my belongings i have to reserve place on a ground where i am going to sleep and the place i am allowed is 2 and 1/2 feet wide and about 6 feet long no more than 2 and 1/2 feet because 175 people have to sleep in that hall and mind you there will be as many ladies as gents so there will be 80 ladies and 80 gents there will be a different halls for the different hall or halls classrooms you can imagine school classrooms so maybe four classrooms are for ladies four classrooms are for gents and there we will sleep comfortably there will be no complaints there will be no quarrels no fights no encroachments very lovely so by 10 o'clock we are done after dinner we wash our utensils then some people start reading from some religious scriptures they may read gita some people will meditate i used to do a little bit of meditation a bit of talking and try to sleep as early as possible maybe by 10:30 11 so that you are ready to get up at 3:30 in the morning that was the day that is a long day <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic so you did that for two and a half weeks and then you made it to pandarpur when you made it to the sacred destination what were your priorities what did you need what did you want to do when you arrived in pandarpur when we arrived in pandarpur that was uh, in the afternoon and the first thing we went and took some rest and in the evening the auspicious day was on the next day we reached one day in advance and the ekadashi the 11th day of the lunar month which is known as ekadashi that is the holy day on which everybody gathers at pandarpur for the celebrations so the celebrations were to begin on the next day we went walking to the bank of the river where the temple is also located 
we just took, uh, washed our feet in the river and we just enjoyed the whole ambience the ambience was such that there was no vehicular traffic allowed in the town at all and everywhere you could see people people and only people and the tradition is to carry saffron flags the saffron flags are the indication of your religious love for the saffron color saffron color is the color of renunciation so the flag is saffron so i do not belong to this world my world is with the world of lord the love the world the world of lord that is where i belong my love is with the lord so that is the flag people carrying the flag and there are so many groups each group is singing chanting on their own and they have their own separate music arrangement and all of them on the river bank uh, virtually uh, hundreds of thousands of people at least a few hundred thousand people there then we also took a stroll by the temple you know, the place was very crowded walking itself was very difficult it took about an hour to come near the temple and we just took a round around the temple and came back that was on the previous evening and the day when the festival starts the ashadi ekadashi that is the purpose you go to pandrapur you get free from all your karmas you get free from the bondage to life and death cycles so for that in the morning we went to the river we took a holy bath on the day of ashadi ekadashi that is considered as the very holy bath and after taking the holy bath even while taking the holy bath if you only look at the dome of the pandrapur temple you can see the dome of the pandrapur temple from the water while you are having the bath and the poem that saint namdev has composed he says that those who come to pandrapur on the day of ashadi ekadashi take a holy dip in the river chandrabhaga and have only darshan have only a glance at the dome of the temple they become free from the cycles of birth and death so you merely glance the dome of the temple and you are done your purpose for taking this human life is served that was a feeling everything the whole universe is a feeling in my mind apart from that modern science says quantum physics says if you are there the universe is there if the observer is not there the observed does not exist the universe does not exist the universe exists only as long as there is an observer and if the whole thing is now coming back to the mind that the mind has created this whole scene this is a 3d movie around you which you alone have created and you alone have the trick you know the trick how to get out of this movie otherwise it's going to pester you for eons and eons millions of years the trick to get out of this is with meditation and with realization that you are the doer and you get out of it by getting into a samadhi mode and trying to get self realization get enlightenment so it's kind of a moment of enlightenment when you look at the dome from the from the river and then you feel that yes you have done something you achieved the a dream it was a dream for me right since i was a childhood because i used to be curious how can people walk all the way 235 kilometers it was appearing like impossible to every day you keep walking in the end you cover 235 kilometers to reach god walking i had achieved that dream i had mingled around with the people who called themselves as servants of god they called themselves as haridas haridas is servant of god 
whatever they do they do as a service to god they will not do anything else so those are the worker is very strong devotees and i mingled around with them i walked around with them i heard stories of saints saints lives i could recite the abhangas the poems the verses written by saints i could be in their company for 19 days that was a very gratifying feeling which i enjoyed then after the river then we dressed up we came to the temple again a huge mob in fact it was bigger rush than the previous evening we took one round around the temple what is called perambulation or a pradakshina so you take a track around the temple you go down there you cannot go inside the temple there are too many people so you cannot go and that is why the religious poetry has allowed you it says you don't have to go inside the temple all you have to do is look from outside look at the dome worship the dome and you are done so we did exactly that and we came back to the place where we were halting the place we were halting our group leader had performed a satyanarayana puja again a puja of lord vishnu in the group it is to be done with husband and wife they performed a puja and with the puja we ate the food which is the offering from that puja in our dindi so we had a dindi vithoba idol of vithoba vithoba in our puja we worship that vithoba our dindi and we had a nice lunch with lot of sweets and then the group operator the dindi owner he said now you are free whatever you want you can do if you want to stay here you can stay here if you want to go back home you can go back home you're now some years removed from this experience looking back and thinking about where you are now what did this mean to your life how did it affect you for me the first thing i did after coming back was i wrote a blog because for me i had tried to search on internet information which will be useful for me to prepare for the walk i had found none so then i was determined that after i finish my walk i am going to put useful information on internet so that anybody else who wants to go he should have some guidance so i wrote blogs after coming back and then i converted that into a book in 2016 i wrote a book and i completed that book and i published that book after that lot of people all over the world in all the cities major cities in the world beat in germany uk brazil japan so a lot of people bought the book they read the book and after 7 years of my walk 6 years of my walk i still keep getting satisfaction that one thing is i have been blessed by lord that i was able to complete this walk without any problems if i had become sick i wouldn't have been able to complete it and i would have felt bad because you make so much preparation and if you cannot complete the walk you would be in really very sorry state of affairs but god gave me strength he had it in his mind that i should be able to complete the trek and then i remember that the memory is carried forever that is the one beautiful thing i did my duty by guiding others by writing a book i keep telling people those who come to me how to prepare for this wari i keep telling them i keep guiding them i keep encouraging them and i have a great satisfaction that my own religion i want to portray a correct information about my religion to the rest of the world 
that what my religion stands for what my religion how it teaches me how to give love to all how to give love to every fellow human being how to give love and affection to god why you should never be scared of god why god never be angry with you and all this i have become a wiser man i feel and i have been able to portray a better image of my religion by writing about this pilgrimage in a language which the world understands so a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are pilgrimage addicts they go once and then they want to go again and again some of them are comfortable in europe and they won't go any further but others are curious and are looking always for new places new opportunities for those people specifically westerners who have no frame of reference here they they have no background with hinduism they've never spent any time in india maybe never in in any part of asia but they're intrigued by what you've described is the pandarpur wari something they could do and would they be welcome on this pilgrimage yes uh, they can do they could do and some of them have done it every year the newspaper coverage says that there are some groups of americans or europeans or even people coming from the eastern side maybe japan or australia people come some of them bring research equipment with them mainly they they are attracted to understand what is it that brings hundreds of thousands of people and for no other reason other than love for god i'm not going there to ask for something i'm just telling god god i love you i have to meet you and then i go back and that kind of attraction what is that magnet which pulls everybody to walk 230 kilometers and in such huge group and facing whatever inconveniences on the way so westerners are doing lot of research they try to come and find out how the energy comes in the feet that is why i told you the secret which i had found of the energy when we are listening to the hari part we are singing hari part in the evenings and group leader is singing one line we repeat after him and that one hour routine i my stomach is having some tea i have taken some biscuits i am resting and i am my mind is enjoying and that is the time that the whole recovery takes place and in the next morning at 4:30 i believe me the man who was dog tired in the previous evening he is raring to walk another 20 kilometers on the next day so this experience many westerners have come to get this experience of walking with the wari and it is possible and what i would recommend is anybody who wants to walk please buy my book and read how to prepare it gives everything a to z about how to prepare to walk for a wari what do you expect in a wari in a pandapur pilgrimage and if he calls me i'll be very happy to guide him personally <laughs> fantastic and i will echo the usefulness of your book i appreciate how you have combined there your personal journal and a whole bunch of practical information i definitely came out of reading it feeling like i could do this so you are you are really a very very interested in pilgrimages because what i observed is you have read every page every line of my book <laughs> i did that is amazing that is amazing Absolutely. That's what I do. Deepak, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure and tremendously informative. 
I've really enjoyed getting to learn about the Pandarpur Wari from you. It's uh, really a pleasure for me too. And I must appreciate your energy, your enthusiasm and your approach. Okay, so can we all agree we will never complain about the Camino Frances being crowded again? Things are bigger in India, aren't they? As I said at the beginning, I think there's a lot to be learned through the study of different pilgrimage traditions, and that learning can make our own specific pilgrimages more meaningful. Diana highlighted the central role of intention in Indian pilgrimage, and that stood out to me more and more as a critical component of making one's Camino more consequential. I'm reminded there of my conversation with Alexander John Shia and his book on the subject. I really enjoyed Deepak's extensive comments on the sacred symbolism of feet, how they can be linked to humility and devotion and love, and this, in turn, spurred me to reflect more on the foot-washing tradition on the Camino and Via Francigena. And the notions of Darshan and Tirtas stick with me as well. More on pilgrimage than anywhere else, I suspect, we become cognizant of the distinction between looking and seeing. And I'm struck by the fact that Darshan simultaneously means seeing and being seen. Meanwhile, we have all, I suspect, experienced places on pilgrimage that have been tirtas in their own ways, awe-inducing locations akin to thin places, which we talked about with Stephen Drew, where the sacred seemed within reach. There's power, I think, in having this kind of language, even in translation, to help us wrap our minds around the intangible and evanescent qualities of pilgrimage that often elude our meager vocabularies. And that's something I've gained from learning more about pilgrimage in India and beyond, and I hope you will as well. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Diana Eck. You can find her books, including Benares, City of Light, and India, A Sacred Geography, at bookstores everywhere. Thanks as well to Deepak Fadnas. His book, Pandarpur Wari, A Walking Pilgrimage to Pandarpur, is available on Amazon. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple, Google, and Spotify. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>